The following conversation with Bruce Barthel, bass player with Country Joe and the Fish and musical director with the San Francisco Mime Troupe, first aired on Friday, February 19th, 2021 on the Radical Songbook on KPOV 88.9 FM, High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. The Radical Songbook is hosted by Michael Funky. It is a two-hour show highlighting the role that music plays in social justice and protest, and that airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Bruce Barthel was the bass player with Country Joe and the Fish in the late 1960s. He played on their first three albums until he left the band in 1968. Barthel moved to Great Britain soon after and started another band, formerly Fat Harry, with a couple of other expats from the U.S., a few years later, after his return to the States, he played in the Energy Crisis and then became the musical director for the San Francisco Mime Troupe. I came of age with the fish in the late 1960s, and I have been a fan of the Mime Troupe, as recent listeners can attest, for many decades. In 2017, I came across Barthel's name on a compilation CD called Spain in My Heart. I was producing a show about the Spanish Civil War, which originally aired on December 8, 2017, and included songs recorded in the 1930s, plus contemporary co covers of some of those songs, and new music commemorating the Abraham Lincoln Brigade and others who fought in Spain to defend democracy against fascism in the late 1930s. Bruce Barthel wrote one of the songs I played on that show. Working on that show drew me to a group called ALBA, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archives, and The Volunteer, Alba's quarterly publication. I stumbled on Barthel's name in a copy of The Volunteer, looked into their archives, and came across a 2014 Alba interview with him. The Fish, the Mime Troupe, the Spanish Civil War. That was enough for me to see a story I wanted to tell on the Radical Songbook. And so, here we are today. Bruce Barthel, welcome to KPOV and the Radical Songbook. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for thanks for taking the time. Um, you know, you have accomplished a lot in the 50-plus years since you left uh, Country Joe and the Fish, but I, I'd like to start back then, if it's okay, actually, if it's okay with you, a little even before that. Sure. Okay. Uh, you and I are the same age. I know we're both 73. Um, you yeah. became... You became politically aware and active uh, when you were still in high school. Is that right? Actually, earlier than that, I would say. We moved to Pennsylvania from Berkeley in 1953, and uh, that was a very different world. My mom, it, it, the town was full of blue laws, no movies on Sundays, stuff like that. And uh, so she got involved in Democratic Party politics. And I remember I must have been still in elementary school when my mom and I were out shopping or something. And there was a picket line around the store. My mom said, we don't go in there. Right. That's how you get your politics as a young kid, I think. So I knew there was something called politics, right, when I was six years old. And then uh, when I was six, seven years old, I was very offended by slavery. We lived pretty near Gettysburg, right? And we went there a couple of times, and I put on my union outfit, you know, Levi's with yellow tape down the 
sides of the pants and a Levi jacket with corporal stripes, and I had a Union cavalry hat and a BB gun. So I'd go out to Gettysburg and run around and look for slavers to shoot. <laughs> Going after the Confederates. Yeah. And then you moved, uh, You your family moved to Southern California, right? Yeah, then we moved to L.A. But you had some roots in Berkeley, as I understand. You you had your, your grandparents lived here, lived in Berkeley? Yep, and other grandparents in San Francisco. You visited the Bay Area long before you actually um, moved there. Well, I had lived there for the first five years, so it was always kind of home. You enrolled, I'm fascinated by this because I graduated high school in 1965, and and you entered uh, UC Berkeley, as I said, we're the same age. You enter, Actually, you're a little younger than I am. You entered Berkeley in 1964. Right. <laughs> you were way, way ahead of me. <laughs> you know? I, I was actually kind of lucky because I had, I had started first grade when I was five. Then in November, I turned six. Well, that was, I should have been cut off, right? I should have started first grade when I was six, almost seven. So I started when I was five, almost six. And then in the sixth grade, I skipped half a year. And then I got out early from high school by graduating (laughs) non-academic. But I went to Berkeley. And you got into the University of California in Berkeley in 1964, which is an historic year at UC Berkeley with the the free speech movement blossoming there. You got involved in that? Yeah, yeah, early on. I mean, it was pretty obvious that the university was out of its mind. They, you know, the whole basis of the FSM was the university said we have to be free from secular and religious control. Therefore, you can't organize anything on campus, right? So there were tables set up for CORE and SNCC and the Young Republicans and a bunch of other groups, right? And this had been, for decades, there had been some tables set up, and they banned them because... The uh, picket lines for the civil rights movement every Friday night, it was in Jack London Square where William Noland ate dinner because there was a protest, right? William Noland was the power in Oakland. He'd been a U.S. senator. And uh, anyway, he... uh, (laughs) He he owned the Oakland Tribune, as I recall. That's right. He called up the university and said, get these kids out of here. So they did. I did a show on the free speech movement back in 2014, the 50th anniversary, and I, I, you know, told listeners at that time, I said, you know, basically what it got down to was, it's hard to believe nowadays, but essentially it was a right to hand a, a political leaflet to another, one student didn't have the right to hand a political leaflet to another student, which which today sounds ridiculous. It was ridiculous then. And it's strange to think that that's maybe the one a political fight I was involved in that we won. Yeah. The students actually won. Of course, by winning, we then got Ronald Reagan as governor, who for the first time put tuition into, you now had to pay for a university. And he did some other terrible stuff as a result of the FSM. 
So yeah. beware you win. Were you at Sproul Hall when Mario yeah. Savio spoke? Yeah, I was there and I marched in. I have to say that because I was only 17 and the, you know, the student leadership went through the building saying, if you're under 18, leave because you won't be processed in the same way. You'll go to a different jail. You'll have a different judge. You won't be allowed to blah, blah, blah. So I left. And uh-huh. so I wasn't arrested, but I was there the next morning on the picket line protesting the arrests. I ripped up my young Democrats card on the steps of Hall. Were you into music? Uh, uh, Were you playing music by them? I was a folky. Um, You know, I've been to a bunch of folk festivals, went to the Ash Grove and played guitar and harmonica and bad banjo and, you know. There was a folk music boom that I I saw begin because I think it was like in 63, maybe there was a folk music show on an FM station in L.A. It was on for two hours. That's where I first heard Bob Dylan, who I went out then. I went to the white front, you know, this department store and asked the guy in the record department, do you have anything by this guy, Bob Dylan, (laughs) D-I-L-L-O-N? I thought he was named after Matt Dillon, you know, the U.S. Mark. So did they have a record? They did, and the guy was hip enough to know who I meant. Did you run into Joe McDonald down there? No, no. I was up in Berkeley. And how did that come about in Berkeley? Joe, I guess I knew him slightly from the Jabberwock, the coffee house at Russell and Telegraph. And you already knew Barry Melton, is that that the case? high school together in L.A. So there you have three of the five initial original members of The Fish. Yeah. Actually, to be very specific, the first Fish had a gut bucket played by Richard Saunders and tambourine by another guy and then Barry and Joe. So it was kind of a jug bandy kind of thing going on. Absolutely, yeah. There was only one electric instrument, and that was the guitar. As you know, I'm sure, I mean, that's how, you know, Jerry Garcia, before the dead, was playing in a jug band as well. I mean, that was a pretty popular route for a lot of uh, young folk musicians to take, branching out from just doing a solo gig. Yeah, yeah. And it was always more fun for me, anyway, to play with other people. You guys were playing at the Jabberwock in Berkeley. Yeah, yeah. That was sort of our home base. I saw Country Joe and the Fish many times uh, in the Bay Area. I, I saw you at, you wouldn't remember this, but I saw you at College of San Mateo when I was there. It was an anti-war rally of some sort. Was it an afternoon out-of-doors gig? Yeah, it was. Okay, I remember it, I think. Yeah. You do. Yeah, 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 it was an afternoon out-of-doors, outside gig at, at CSM, yeah. And, you know, a lot of bands, as you know, a lot of the bands in the Bay Area played college the college circuit i mean we saw a big brother and the holding company were there the grateful yeah. dead played the you know i mean this was uh i guess there was uh some local uh promoters who were able to get gigs for the local bands long before any of you um had recording contracts not so much promoters but students it was more of one community you know yeah. i didn't feel weird going on a college campus. I'd come off a college campus. Country Joe and the Fish, that's uh, an odd name for a band, a, 
amidst all kinds of odd names for bands. What did, where did that name name come from? Can you tell our listeners? Uh, yeah, it came from uh, Country Joe had nothing to do with Joseph Stalin. That's the big story now. We're named after Joseph Stalin and a quote from a Mao Zedong poem, which is correct. It's something like a revolutionary is a fish in the sea of the people. So, but this was all done with great humor, right? And uh, right. Country Joe was, I think it didn't even had not, didn't have anything to do with Joe. It was just a name that they picked, and then it stuck. I got to meet Country Joe's uh, mother later in life. She must she was living up in she was living up in Sonoma County sometime in the early seventies, and she actually did some typesetting for the Sonoma County Bugle up there. This probably was in seventy two or seventy three, and and you know we had put a, it was a that was a struggling little paper, and we had put an ad in, in our paper saying we need typesetters, and the woman shows up and. We said she would volunteer to typeset for us, and mm-hmm. in the course of the conversation, we learned that she was Country Joe's mother, and we all went, we all went gaga over that, you know. It's like, wow, you're country, you're Country Joe's mother. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, then, and then, of course, she went on to get elected uh, to a, yeah. an office in, Ber- in Berkeley. As, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Joe, Joe was Joe was what they called a red diaper baby, if I, if I recall right. Yeah. yeah. Barry Milton was also oh, okay. a red okay. baby. Yeah. And for our listen for our listeners, what that means is a red diaper baby means that you came from a a family that was either they were either members of the Communist Party or close to members of the Communist Party or at least had been identified as, as uh radicals. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And I wasn't a red diaper baby. My folks were I was raised as an anti anti communist. Anti communists were so insane in the fifties. If the Communist Party supported clean air, then by God we're against it. So uh and you know, my folks were what was called Stevenson Democrats from Adlai Stevenson's campaigns. So my first picket line was in nineteen sixty and I went with my mom in LA down to the Democratic National Convention where this upstart rich kid named Kennedy was going to get the nomination and take it away from Adlai Stevenson. So we went down there and marched around the sports arena singing, draft him, draft him, draft Adlai Stevenson, we're going to make him president, draft Adlai Stevenson. Adlai Stevenson was the candidate, the Democratic Party candidate, in both 52 and 56, uh, running yeah. against uh, General Ike. Eisenhower. Yeah, Ike. Just to get back to the the fish a bit here before we move on. So yeah. you guys played some pretty far out um, music. Uh, I mean, truly, uh, you know, truly psychedelic music like Section 43 and Porpoise Mouth and yeah. bass strings, yeah. bass strings. But you also played some political songs way ahead of other bands in the Bay Area. I feel like I'm fixing to die rag, of course, is the most obvious one. How did that come about? Joe had written that before the band started, and it was just one of the tunes. It's not only an overtly political song. I mean, it's this upbeat. It's it's really kind of a fascinating song with the way you guys did that song. I mean, you've got that upbeat jug band rhythm going on. You've got... You've got the uh, the background vocals singing psychedelic, psychedelic, psychedelic. On one hand, it's the very 
serious commentary about the war and 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 at the other on the other hand a very humorous and and you had this you know you had this line be the first one on your block to have your boy come home in a box that must have really ticked off a few people i don't have any proof of this but maybe someone knows that uh country john the fish pete seeger and joan baez were banned from military px sales and that we were also banned from from top 40 radio well i, I know that pete was pete was yeah. uh, buffy st marie was as well Okay, and John Baez and us. That's what I heard. So, so without without um, using the word, let me ask you: What came first for the band, the fish cheer or the f bomb cheer? The fish cheer. I was out of the band when the cheer. Uh, sorry, it's, the f cheer came about after I was out of the band, and okay. I never actually liked it that much. You did some other funny stuff too. I mean, not, I mean, sort of funny, serious stuff like little, little short pieces that were kind of unique. Um, the bomb song, the LSD yeah, the commercial, the good yeah, guys, bad guys cheer. Yeah, we were always had a, a theatrical aspect, I think. That yeah. Dad's walk, we used to, uh, we had carried a lunchbox on stage in the middle of a song. It's, alarm clock would go off and we'd all stop and take out a sandwich <laughs> in the middle of the set. You know, that's right on. Yeah. Get your, yeah, get your union break in there in the, uh, you know, amidst the work. So you did leave the band. In fact, were you fired in 1968 yeah. after you were fired? Yeah, How was, come? Well, Joe told me it was because I wasn't a very good bass player. Being 20 years old and having spent the previous three years in the band, that was a little hard to take. I was never replaced by anybody really better. But um, there was a big problem about Chicago, the Democratic Convention. We'd been going around saying, we'll see you in Chicago. Gig after gig, we did this, right? And then like the week before the convention's supposed to start, Joe calls a meeting and we're in New York, and he says, I don't want to go to Chicago. People are going to get hurt. I don't want to be responsible for getting people to Chicago and having them be hurt. And I said, well, the Chicago thing's going to happen, and we're in the best position. You know, Joe said our equipment's going to get wrecked. It's going to be terrible. And I said, you know, we're in the best position to survive that, one, we'll be heroes if our equipment's wrecked, you know, and we'd have stood for something. But no, we canceled the appearance, and we were in Chicago right before the convention, right, three days before. So this is – anyway, we go there. We arrive in Chicago. The airport's full of Dalyettes, Mayor Daly's little, you know, uh, lackeys running around the airport. Welcome to Chicago. <laughs> and uh, then we played this gig at whatever the psychedelic hall was there. And then we go back to our hotel, nice hotel. Anyway, Chicken and I walk in, go straight to the elevator because we have our room keys. The next morning, I hear that what happened is the elevator door closed. Chicken and I go up, and this off-duty soldier runs into the lobby and punches David, punches Joe, and punches Barry and runs out 
We didn't we didn't play the festival, but at least they got punched. So that was it for you and the fish. Well, yeah. Then the next month, I get this call from the manager saying the band has voted you out. Uh, David and Chicken were gone within six months of my departure. So it wasn't the same after that. I mean, uh, the first three albums, the and the one, those are the ones that all the, the five of you were on. And then after that, I wasn't the same. You ended up going to uh, Great Britain and putting together a band there called Formerly Fat Harry. Well, I had a friend, Gary Peterson, who was living in London. He was He's a musician, and uh, I wanted to get out of the country because um, my draft status was, I was coming up to get called in, called up. So I got a one-way deferment, good for one year, and in that year, I decided to go to England. So I also I'd been fired, so I could do whatever I wanted. And so I uh, opted to move to London. We've got another American guy called Phil Greenberg, who's a Berkeley folky guy, friend of ours. He came over and got an English drummer and uh, got management from the from Pink Floyd's management. And uh, we played for three years over there. It's funny. We put out this album and then the band broke up. (laughs) We had this hardcore of fans and they put together about five, six years ago, a a release of stuff that had never been released before. One's on an LP and then there's a uh, a CD with, I don't know, 20 tracks that we cut. Actually, I saw that CD online. People, if if listeners, if you're interested in, in hearing formerly Fat Harry go online, and you can find both the CD that was reco- re- recorded and the outtakes as well. Then you came back to the States, and uh, you were part of a band called the Energy Crisis Band with members, people that had been in the Cleanliness and Godliness Skiffle Band. What was that about? Well, that was uh, me and my friend Phil Marsh. We started the Energy Crisis during the Energy Crisis, right? We were... We were a power yeah. trio <laughs> called the Energy <laughs> Crisis, but we we had that Berkeley kind of humor going on. Are there any recordings of the Energy Crisis band? N- nothing official. There are. Well, we played on Scoop Nisker's record. Who was that? Scoop Nisker. Oh, K- Scoop Nisker. If you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. That's it. We did some demo tapes. You know, we did uh, Skylab. <laughs> That's one of Phil's tunes. Skylab over Watergate. And I saw a reference at one point you were in a band where everybody, all the other players were women in the band? Actually, yes. Uh, there, It was a band called Delicia and the Darvons. And it was an all-girl band that happened to have a male uh, rhythm section. I kind of enjoyed that. It was old rock and roll, but I had an epiphany playing with them at the Long Branch. And I looked out at the audience and everybody seemed to be stoned on beer and seconal. Right. And it was just, I really realized I didn't need to be there. Then the next day I got a call from a friend that I wanted to join the mime troupe. I assume you you knew who the mime troupe was, of course. Yeah, we'd, we'd done a, a show uh, at the Matrix 
that was Country Joe and the Fish and the SF Mime Troupe. They did a play, a short play, and then we did our set. They did the play, we did our set. And uh, that was, I liked that a lot, and I'd seen the Mime Troupe a bit. And I, by the time I got back from England, I had friends who were in it. You were invited to, to do what with them initially? Well, to join the collective, which meant to make plays and put them on. And uh, they wanted a one-year commitment. I told them, I can give you six months. And then I stayed for 34 years. <laughs> what was it like for you in 1976 when you started with the Mime Troop? I was looking for a place to work that didn't have a boss. And uh, that was kind of the Mime Troop. It functioned, so it wasn't like nutty, you know. We, you know, went through a bunch of changes about how to organize things and and keep the shows going. And also we had a, the Mind Troop had a certain quality, you know. They didn't do bull****. So I, I felt happy to be asked to be there. And then it, then it really fit well. I saw the Mime Troop over the years when I lived in the Bay Area. And I, I last saw them in Petaluma about 10 years ago now. I saw them in Detroit when they performed at the Majestic Theater when I lived in Detroit. They're a great, a great political theater. And, and it's just amazing to me that, that, that the Mime Troop has been around for, for 60 years doing this work. I mean, that's through, through many, many transitions. You ultimately became the music director for the Mime Troupe. Yeah, pretty quickly, actually, because the the woman who was in charge of the music left after I joined. So I was kind of, the next show had to be done. And so I, I it was really my uh, beginning as a writer, I think. I'd written some stuff before then, but that isn't anything that I did, you know, regularly. What was the first Mime Troupe show that you worked on? It was the Bicentennial show. It was called False Promises or Nos Engañaron, which means we've been fooled. It was this pretty good uh, epic. Uh, there were three levels to the show. There was the top level, which was McKinley and Morgan and Teddy Roosevelt. Then there was this minor strike going on in uh we called it Silver City, Colorado. Uh, and then there was the story of this black guy who tries to vote, gets run out of town, and then he signs up uh, to join the army because they're going to liberate Cuba. All these three stories, like, weave together over a couple of hours. That was my first show, and I just I wrote a couple of ditties, nothing real. Then the next show we were putting together, we were in Europe. We did the show that became Hotel Universe. And uh, the first tune I wrote for it was called We Won't Move. And that's for the mind show has been something of a hit for the last 40 years. For our listeners, if you want to learn more about the Mime Troop, you can go to sfmt.org and learn a lot, including a series of interviews with people that were part of the Mime Troop, including uh, Bruce Barthel, who I'm speaking to here. And um, you can see the some of the listen to some of the radio plays. You know, get a sense of what the Mime Troop is about. And so, somewhere along the line, you actually got a, a degree in musical theater. Yeah, I, I went. I, I had a friend who was on the faculty at NYU, and he basically uh, got me into a graduate program in musical theater. So 
so I went there for two years. Was that while you were working at the Mime Troupe? Yeah, I'd go home in the summer and work on the show. When did you go to Cuba? 1980, the first American theater company to go since the revolution. That that was fascinating. We also played East Berlin once. And you played Nicaragua? Yeah, yeah, we played the first and last International Theater Festival of Managua. What year was that? 86. And then I stayed on with a friend of mine, Ed Levy, from the Mime Troupe, and we attached ourselves to a couple of friends from this Mexican group and went up on this basically a Sandinista USO tour, which was also fascinating. You worked there for 33, 34 years. You must have enjoyed the work. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And then finally, in the last decade, I was finding I was having to write the same song slightly differently because the Mime Troupe basically does morality plays, right? And there's only so many times you can approach this situation, which was similar to this other situation. I found myself rewriting old songs. And I said, well, maybe it's time I somebody else do this, you know. Now, Daniel Savio is the musical director of all these radio plays that I played, Mario Savio's son. So yes. this is kind of fascinating to me in terms of your own personal history that you, you know, yes, you, saw yes. his, you saw his father, you, were, you know, you, you, you knew, knew of, if didn't know him personally, but you were there with him. And now yes. his son, Daniel, is the musical director and doing a great job, I think. Yeah, no, we also wrote a a show together with Joan Holden called FSM, and it was at the Berkeley Rep during the um, reunion, the 50-year reunion. With Joan Holden? Yeah, she was the main troupe playwright for decades. She actually visited here in Bend, Oregon, when a local theater group, did uh, the play Nickel and Dimed based on Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Nickel and Dimed. It was Joan Holden who took that book and turned it into a play. Yeah. And we and a, lo- and a local theater group, uh, including friends of ours, performed in that play. And Joan Holden came up for one of the shows, maybe the premiere, I can't remember. But uh, it was a great event here, you know, and she did a great job on that play. It was a good book, too, the Barbara Ehrenreich book. Now, simultaneously with your working uh, at the Mime Troupe, you also had uh, developed an interest in the Spanish Civil War from the 1930s. And and listeners know that I did a show about the Spanish Civil War a couple years, a few years back. I think it was in 2017. And I actually included on that show a song that you wrote. Uh, You have a long um, history in terms of your your, – Involvement. Can you talk a bit about what that what drew your interest? What 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 is yeah. it about the Spanish Civil War that drew your interest? Well, it first drew my interest um, when I lived in Spain in 1959 for six months. My dad was a university professor and he had a sabbatical, and he got hired by USAID, I think to go to Madrid and look at how he was an industrial psychologist and, you know, basically consult with their industry. So we moved to Madrid, which was great. I I really loved it there, although 
it was definitely my mom could walk around Madrid anywhere, any time of day or night. That's how safe it was, right? But um, it was uh, my folks didn't like Franco. They were anti-Franco, right? So that was. I remember before we went, we, I was with my mom somewhere in the Sierra, I think, and my mom looked around and said, gee, this looks like where they might have shot for whom the bell tolls. And I said, what's that, mom? You know, and so she told me a little bit. And then later I asked them, we're going to Spain. I said, are they communists in Spain? I was 11, right? And my mom said, no, they're worse. They're fascists. Yeah, Franco was around for, for, you know, yeah, well over, God, I don't know when he died, but at any rate. He died in 75, I believe. Yeah, a long, uh, yeah, lingering fascist rule, basically, of Spain. Yeah. So I read so you, Civil War book when I was there. I took it out from the air base at Torreon, uh, and it was the life of El Campesino, a, uh, a Republican general. The book was very anti-communist, but it had a lot of great facts. If I'd been a little older, I would have known what to ask people, you know. But at 11, you know, it's a a bit much. But we had a maid, for instance, the only time we've ever had a maid. And my folks doubled her salary and made it five bucks a day, right? And and we were in a pretty bourgeois apartment building in downtown Madrid. And apparently, the rest of the tenants were really pissed at us. <laughs> and we paid her so much money that she hired a maid. <laughs> All right. You, you came back to the Spanish Civil War in a more active way. Well, yeah, there's this opportunity to that the uh, veterans of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade or Battalion, which were the name of the, the, the guys and women who went to fight for the Republic, um, they had an annual reunion out here. And I was in a group in 73 called Bay Area Progressive Musicians Association, in which I played either the clarinet or guitar. And we played picket lines and left-wing events, and so we played for the Lincoln Battalion, uh, Spanish Civil War songs and stuff. And then I basically never stopped. (laughs) Uh, A few years after that, we put together our own programs, you know, with uh, slides and texts and stuff. And you've played some benefits for the organization, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archives. Yeah, I've then they when the the vets were almost all gone, they dissolved the veterans of the Abraham Lincoln Battalion and uh, uh, the academic. Uh, it all went to NYU to the Tamament Library, and the uh, there's a New York event and a West Coast event, and for a number of years I played both of them. I got to play yeah, with Pete Seeger twice. <laughs> you played with Pete Seeger two times? Yeah, yeah, at that the must, Lincoln Brigade. That must have been fun. Yeah, it's like playing with Jesus Christ, except Jesus didn't play the banjo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Pete's, uh, Pete was an amazing guy. He truly yeah. was an amazing guy. Yeah, um, he does a weird thing on his... Uh, 
uh, on his version of Viva la Quince Brigada, which is the version that they sing in Spain, right? His music went back, and then people were listening to his his uh, records, you know, in, in dark rooms, and and he kept the music alive a lot, I think. Anyway, yeah, he, uh, he, he does this weird thing on Viva la Quince Brigada where between the verses, he uh, keeps it, in, uh, it's in six, eight times, so you're sort of in a feel of three or four, depending on where you are. And he did it one way, and I did it another. And he came up and said, um, uh, are you the band leader? And I said, yes. And he said, would you mind if you played it this way? And I said, no, Pete, I don't mind. I learned it from you. So, More recently, you um, you did put out your own CD in 2008. Uh, I don't want to necessarily jump that much from Alva, but in 2008 you put out a CD called The Decline and Fall of Everything. It, it actually includes a song. La That's a song about the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, yeah. It was a battle in uh, uh, western Spain where, yeah, it was an important battle and massacre as the fascist forces tended to shoot everybody, take a town, and then most of the towns had voted Republican. And if you had voted Republican or if you had been elected, you were dead. That was a criminal offense. It was a brutal war. The Spanish Civil War was a brutal war. And Mussolini, the Italian fascist and the Nazis, basically they practiced their air warfare on innocent civilians in Spain during that war. That was a famous uh, painting by Picasso called the Guernica. So your album, The Decline and Fall of Everything, includes quite a few songs that have uh, some political content. Most of my songs have something to do with something. You put together a band called The Former Members, which included David Cohen from The Fish and a guy named Greg Douglas, who played with Hot Tuna and Steve Miller and Greg Keane and uh, Roy Blumenfeld, who was with The Blues Project. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you guys still get together? No. Um, that was a very strange and nice event, which was David Cohen who's a Buddhist, he came out to San Diego or L.A. for a big peace festival, and he had to put together a band. So he called uh, Roy and Greg and me, and we did maybe four gigs. And then John Roberts, this guy who lives in Ireland, he's a Brit, he booked the Country Joe Band, which lasted for a couple of years in the early 2000s. He said, do you guys want to tour England? You know, we, we weren't even really a band. And I, I said, sure. And everybody else said, sure. And so he got us a bunch of gigs, and we went to England, and we went to the house of this friend of mine who lives in Wales, who had a barn where we could stay and practice. And so we spent five days there working up a repertoire, and then we went out and we did three years of tours, one of which was 17 shows in 17 days. Everybody was, I guess, almost in their 70s or almost, and uh, we functioned very well, you know, and we were we were good, I think. Did you start your gigs earlier than 10 p.m.? <laughs> we tried to. <laughs> so are you still playing music today? In theory, yes. <laughs> 
Yeah, the pandemic, of course, has impacted everybody's ability to get together and do things like play music. Still writing songs? Not at the moment. Or is that true? No, there's a couple of songs I'm kind of working on that I probably should finish up and record. It just seems there is so much stuff out there. It's amazing what you can find on YouTube. Yeah, and it's all these artists who are who are producing stuff and putting it out there for people to hear, and, and they're not making a penny off of it. So there's a lot of struggling musicians that are um, probably struggling even more now because they can't even, you know, get a gig where somebody will pass the hat or something like that. It's weird. Being a musician, it's like the pay hasn't gone up in clubs in 40 years. You used to go out and maybe make 50 bucks. And now it's that's good. After the former members, John Roberts, uh, we decided that I would do a solo thing. So I did three years of tours in Ireland and England, which was fun. As somebody who's been politically active for more than your adult life and musically active, how do you feel about the current political situation here in the U.S. and, and you know around the world? Well, uh, it's split. These are the worst of times. On the other hand, we've just had a year in which millions of white people marched for black people in this country. And that is amazing. When Black Lives Matter started, there were demonstrations in every state of the Union. Reminded me of 1968, except for the coronavirus, which has totally screwed things up. Sorry. I just hope that some of these possibilities are realized. Well, I've enjoyed right, well, it. Th- th- yeah, thanks so much, Bruce. I've really enjoyed it, too, and so I really appreciate it. Okay, man. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and a program schedule, go to kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org dot org.